You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get right back into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So let's pray. God, once again, we praise you and thank you that you've given us the time to be together this morning. God, we thank you for other believers that we can gather with, that can encourage us, that can spur us on to good works as we wait for Jesus to return. God, I pray that you'd be with our time this morning as we devote our attention to the Word, God, that you would bless that time together, that you would teach us through the Holy Spirit, that we would leave today challenged and encouraged and convicted where we need it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're in First Thessalonians chapter 2 once again. We have, for the past couple of weeks, been talking about what it means to be entrusted with the gospel, that the gospel has been given to us by God, and we have a responsibility to do certain things with it because we've been entrusted with such a precious gift. We've been entrusted with God's plan for all eternity to save mankind from his sin through Jesus Christ for his glory. We talked a lot about discipleship in chapter 1, and we've carried that theme over into chapter 2. We said ultimately discipleship involves us being the type of people that are worth following, that we, like Ezra, as we looked at this morning already, Ezra looked at God's Word and said, I'm going to read it, study it, and obey it. And so discipleship starts with us having people in this church that are worth following, that are worth mimicking, that are worth uh, obeying their example, so to speak. The second aspect of discipleship is to get other people to follow you. That it doesn't just start with you and your relationship to God, that it, that it continues. That it continues flowing into you pouring yourself into someone else. You investing your life into someone else. Um, and getting them to follow you as you follow Christ. And then that third step we said was to eventually teach that person following you how to lead others as well. That it's investing ourselves into a third and even a fourth spiritual generation. That it's not just about me growing. It's not just about me teaching someone else how to grow. Ultimately, your perspective needs to be, how do I teach the third person how to grow? And I teach that third person through the person that's following me. So it's a third person type perspective when it comes to discipleship. And we've said several times now, our goal for discipleship is to produce people who are joyfully striving to bring glory to God by faithfully living in a fallen world while anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus Christ and adequately equipping others to do the same. So we want to teach people how to bring glory and honor to God, to, to live faithfully in this world that's fallen, and to wait anxiously for Jesus to come back, to wait for that second coming, and then to teach other people how to do the same thing. We've been entrusted with the gospel so we come back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And we've seen, leading up to this, six different things that we need to do because we've been entrusted with the gospel. The first one, we are to endure in the gospel, knowing we serve a good God who is for us. Meaning that we claim the promise of Romans 8.28. That God works in our life for our good. That when we experience conflict, trials, when we experience difficulties, that we trust in the fact that God is good. 
that he's working for our good. And just like Paul said, we endured conflict. We knew we were entrusted with the gospel, and so we endured the conflict. Secondly, we are to grow in the gospel, knowing it more and more deeply. That It's one of our essentials in our discipleship format, that we want to know the gospel more and more. We want to know it deeply. We want to know words like justification and propitiation and redemption and reconciliation. We want to be able to, to put our minds around what God has done for us to save us. It's a plan that he's had in place for eternity. And we want to know it deeply. Third, we're to protect the gospel, knowing when we are being exposed to false gospels. In the book of Galatians, when the church had begun accepting a false gospel, Paul rebukes not the leadership, but the members of the church. He says, I, I am, I am I'm blown away that you guys are being led away so quickly by another gospel. The, the responsibility was on the congregation to know the gospel so that they could recognize when they were being exposed to false gospels. That's part of the reason we need to know it so deeply. So that if this church ever began to deviate from the gospel, that you as the members of this church would be able to recognize it quickly. Number four, we are to reflect the gospel. Knowing a changed life validates the gospel to others. Paul said that, that he didn't come with error or impurity. He didn't come teaching a false gospel. He didn't come living a life contrary to what he was saying. That there was no impurity in his gospel. There was no impurity in his life. That his life matched the message that he was trying to spread. Number five, we said we are to declare the gospel, knowing God has already approved us to do it. That it's not an issue of are you a good communicator? It's not an issue of are you good at meeting people that you've never met before? It's not, it's not an issue of are you um, good at sharing the gospel? That Paul says we have been approved by God. That if you were saved... And, and most all of us claim that this morning. If you're saved, then God has entrusted you with the gospel. Which means he approved you to be entrusted with the gospel. Which meant he looked at it and said, I want you on my team. I want you to be one who makes disciples. You are qualified according to God. You have what it takes because he's filled you with the Holy Spirit. He says, I've been entrusted. I've been approved. And so we have the same responsibility to declare the gospel Knowing God has approved us to do it. And then number six, we are to invest the gospel. Knowing it is for God's glory and not our own. And that's what we've seen over the past few weeks. And we'll turn our attention to some of the verses we looked at last week once again. Um, starting in verse five. We see in your notes that in order to invest the gospel responsibly, it means that the, the focus has to be on giving. The focus is giving. For us to make disciples, for us to entrust the gospel to new people, people that come into this church, it means that we have to have a focus of giving. It says in verse 5, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. We looked at this more in depth last week, but ultimately Paul came not for his own gain, but for the gain of others. He didn't come to manipulate the situation for his own financial gain. He didn't come to get anything from the Thessalonians. He came to faithfully give of himself, of his resources, of his time. He came to invest in their life. He was concerned about seeing their spiritual maturity happen. He was focused on their needs, not his own needs. He faithfully provided for them like a mom Providing for her kids. And that's the analogy that we left off with last week. That, that Paul comes in the attitude and mindset of a mom taking care of a baby. A mom who wants to sacrifice her own needs, her own desires, her own wants, her own schedule. She sacrifices what she wants to use her time for, for the sake of her baby. So that she can feed it and nurture it and take care of it. And Paul says, that's the mindset I have with you as, as believers in this church. He says... I want to provide for you and nurture you and take care of you like a mom would take care of her child. And I'm willing to sacrifice what I want to do with my time. I'm willing to sacrifice what I want to do with my money. I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to see you grow up in your faith. The next, our focus has to be giving and the motive has to be loving. The motive is loving. 
In verse 8 we saw, he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. We said that Paul was moved to action by viewing these people through the eyes of Christ. He uses strong language like affectionately desirous. He says, you've become dear to us. And we said that, that ultimately he's saying, we, we came to give you the gospel, but we came to give you our lives as well. It's similar to, I think, the relationship that a, a parent has with a child that I anticipate experiencing very soon. I've heard, I've heard many people say that they've, they, they didn't realize they could love someone so much so quickly. That when they, when they first put their eyes on their child, that immediately a, an emotion of love comes across them that, that is so deep, so intense with someone that ultimately they've just met. And that's, again, the attitude that Paul seems to have here. I'm affectionately desirous of you. You're dear to me. You're worth investing everything into. And we said that ultimately these guys are people that Paul barely knows from a, from a human standpoint. He hasn't been in this area very long. He, hasn't have, he doesn't have years of experience with these people. He doesn't have years of ministry and relationship building with these people. He views them through the eyes of the gospel. And as First John says, when we're, when, we're, when we're really saved, we love other people. And he's viewing these people through the gospel. He's viewing these people the way that God views them. He says, I love you. I love you and I want to see you grow up in your faith. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, is that something that characterizes us in relation to people in this church? Do we have these type of feelings towards these people in this church? Is it correct that you could say, I affectionately desire my church family at Sovereign Hope. They are dear to me. I have such an intense desire to see them grow up in their faith. And we said that Paul's not having these feelings because this church is somehow really easy to love. It's not that he found himself in the perfect local church setting to where these people were just very lovable. Because he has these same type of feelings in other churches that he writes to in the New Testament. So it's not that you could look at it and say, no, I don't have affectionate desire for people here. I guess I should go somewhere else. No, like, like the, the, the question is to appeal to you to start pursuing that type of love with people here. That, that the local church is supposed to be loved through the eyes of the gospel. Not because we possess intrinsic, lovable Qualities. Paul says, I love every single one of you at this church, and I desire your spiritual growth. The focus is giving, the motive is loving, as we saw last week. And now we move to verse 9, where the time, the time is demanding. The time is demanding. If we're going to entrust the gospel to others, if we're going to be faithful to make disciples, the time will be demanding. Look at verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers... Our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul worked hard so that he was able to minister effectively. Anybody have any idea what Paul did for a living? Tent maker. If you want to jot down Acts 18.3, we know that Paul learned the trade of tent making. It was something that was consistent with religious people in that day, not only were they taught the law, they were also taught a certain trade. That it was expected to be a religious leader in that day, you also had to have a trade to make money. In fact, it was told that if, if someone came to you who did not have a trade, then you should reject their teaching. So Paul had a trade. He was a tent maker. And it says, according to him in verse 9, that he worked very hard at it in this setting. So hard, in fact, that he says it was, it was labor and, and toil, and it, and it took me at times day and night to accomplish these tasks. And as I was meditating on this this week, I began to, to recognize that a lot of times for me, I mistakenly think that I need more time to do ministry effectively. But if I could only have more time, then I could be more effective ministering in this church, ministering in this area, 
If I just had more time in my schedule. But we see uh, the, the example here. Paul setting himself up as, as an example of, hey, this works. This works. I, I've made disciples. I've planted a church. And I've done it while working day and night. And, and that's, that's convicting to me. That's convicting to me because I talk to other church planters who, who don't have to work a full-time job. And, I, you know, I, sometimes I begin to think, man, if that was the case here, we'd be so much further along. We would have so much more figured out. And then I come to Paul, who is, who is the church planter for us to follow. And, and he says, I work day and night. And we've already seen that his ministry is not in vain. He's told us that in chapter 2, verse 1. But we've already seen he's got a group of people. Their reputation is going out everywhere, according to chapter 1. It's going out everywhere. So what that tells me is that Paul didn't allow hard secular work to excuse him from his gospel responsibilities. He didn't allow secular work to, to keep him from his gospel responsibilities. And I feel like Paul's kind of crying out to us. He says, you're tired. I was tired. You have a busy schedule. I had a busy schedule. Sometimes we think, we, we, we fall into the trap of thinking that our schedule is unique. That we're the one who is really busy. We're the one that has more responsibilities than everybody else. But if we were to take a poll right here, everybody would, would admit that they feel like they are busy. Everybody would admit that they would like more time in their schedule. Everybody would admit that they're tired. So, so nobody is, is, um, is on a different playing field than anybody else in this room. And Paul says, I'm tired. I'm busy. But it doesn't mean that I can, I can neglect my gospel responsibilities. He said, I'm working day and night to make ends meet. But I, I'm, I'm pouring my life into these people. Paul didn't feel like he was owed, like a parent investing in children without being paid. He, he has the same perspective that a parent would have. He, he's not, you know, a parent doesn't invest in their kids and then say, pay up. You know, daddy doesn't come home from work and spend time playing with the kids and then say, my hourly rate is this. Go ahead and pay me because I gave you some of my time tonight. I mean, that would be ludicrous for us to, to even hear of something like that. And that's what Paul's trying to communicate to, to this church. He says, I showed up and I ministered to you like a mom. In a minute, he's going to say, I ministered to you like a dad. And I didn't ask anything back from you. It would have been silly for me to do so. You don't owe me anything. I'm bringing you the gospel. I'm bringing you the life-changing plan of God for your life. How could I charge you for that? How could you owe me anything for that? How do you think, how do you think it could have hurt his ministry if he was being compensated by this church? How, how could it have hurt his ministry? Because he seems to say it was better that I did it this way. He said I could have made demands like an apostle, but I didn't. So why do you think it was better for him not to make demands for money in this situation? Okay, he wanted to distance himself from other teachers who were demanding pay. Okay. Okay, he would have been relying on them and expecting things from them. Okay. Yeah, he really wants to distance himself from being accused of ungodly motives for even being there. I think also, and they see him, you know, the people around they saw him, and they saw him doing his own, they saw him doing his own thing. So at that point, I think that adds a, a punctuation mark where he's saying, "But look, this guy is." Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's setting a an extreme example. He's he's earning credibility with them because he's doing what they do during the day and then investing that time with them, most likely at night. He's emphasizing the point too that the gospel is free. Okay. It's free to everybody, and if he works or if he requires some sort of compensation for it, it's not free. Okay. And I think we need to we need to realize that 
it potentially would have required these people to work more in order to compensate him. That they are probably working how they need to to pay their bills. If someone shows up now and says, hey, I'm going to give you the gospel, but I'm going to need you to pay me like a full-time salary. Okay, well, I'm going to have to start picking up some extra shifts at work. I'm going to have to work overtime so that I can have enough money to give in this way. And it may have hindered his ministry because they would always be at work. You know, great, Paul doesn't have to work, but all his people in his church are at work, so he can't minister to them. I think all of these probably play a factor into why he made the decision not to be paid. Which, I think, opens up a, a, a question, like a side question. Is it right to be paid for doing ministry? I think there's some, some things that we can see here. First of all, in Philippians 4.16, we know that Paul did receive money from churches. In fact, he was receiving money from churches while he's here in Thessalonica. Because in Philippians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So Paul's not saying that I never take money from churches. He's not saying it's inappropriate for a church to fund or support someone like me doing ministry. He's taking money from the Philippian church. Remember, he left Philippi, came here, and they're sending him money. So he's working a job, but even maybe the job's not a job that's meeting all of his needs. So he needs some of that side compensation. He says the same thing in... Um, 2 Corinthians 11, when he's talking to the church at Corinth, he says, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And he's using the, the word rob to... to in a sense to, I mean, he's, he's angry at these people that they're not responding the way that they should. And he's challenging them saying, I was here for free. In fact, I was taking money from churches where they weren't benefiting from my ministry so that I could be here to serve you. So Paul has a precedent for taking money from churches. So when Paul says that, that he works hard day and night, that he's not charging the Thessalonians for his gospel ministry, he's not saying that it's inappropriate for someone to be paid to do ministry. I think, secondly, Paul's in a unique ministry. In 1 Timothy 5.17, it says that it's right and appropriate to honor an elder in the local church setting, even double honor for those who teach and preach. But technically, Paul's not an elder here in this church. He's planting this church, he's establishing elders, and then he's leaving. Okay, so Paul's not functioning in the same way that he calls others to be paid for Paul does not want to ask new believers to pay him back for the gospel. And, and the, I think the best way I can see this is if, if we send Chris to Uganda to do his ministry, churches here are going to fund that. It would be silly for him to show up in Uganda and expect the Ugandans to pay him for being there. So it's appropriate in the same way Paul had the right to take money from other churches to go to a new place to share the gospel with new believers it would be inappropriate, in a sense, to ask new believers to pay him back for now being there. So in the same way we would support Chris and not ask Ugandan people to pay him for being there, Paul's saying, I took money from other churches, but I'm not asking you to pay me because you're a new believer. You're just now receiving the gospel. I think Paul was setting the normal example, and Jason kind of touched on this. The normal example for what a lay church member should look like. To work hard and to minister faithfully. Ministry and hard labor is possible for everyone. That's, that's the message I think Paul wants to communicate here. He says, I don't care what job you have. I don't care what kind of hours you work at your job. I worked day and night and I found time to make disciples. I think that's his point. I think he wanted to set the example and, and to put an example out there that everybody could relate to. I mean, if he comes in and just plants this church without working a job... And he's making disciples, and then he tells someone like Adam or Jason, hey, make disciples too. Then they can easily look at it and say, easy for you to say, you don't work a job. you got all the time in the world to do this. Paul says, no, I don't. I work day and night. And, and it wasn't an easy job because he said it was toil and labor to do this. Paul is saying ultimately that he's here to proclaim the gospel, not to make a living. 
And I've been challenged even looking at this more for even my own perspective here. You know, we built into our budget a, a line item for staff salaries. But we've also built it into such a way that, that I'm not going to receive a full-time salary here. That it's similar to Paul's situation. I'm going to work a full-time job. That job's not going to always meet my financial needs. And to prevent me from having to get maybe a second job, the church is designed to, to help compensate me. But the goal is not, and this is, this is my own personal conviction, the goal is not to, to continue to progress where we pay an elder more. For me, the goal as we continue to get bigger is for us to add more paid elders. See, my desire is that we continue to raise up elders who work full-time jobs, and as we can, we compensate them so they don't have to go work other jobs to make their ends meet. They can find good, hard-working jobs, set the example, and when they can't make ends meet because of the type of job that they have, then our church is there to pay them for the teaching and preaching just like God's Word says. And as long as I'm here, the goal is never going to be for me to be full-time. Because I see the example that Paul set, and I want to continue to set that example. That I can work hard, that I can work a faithful job, and still be able to minister the way God's called us to. So the time is demanding. Paul was setting the normal example for a church member. And then lastly, the goal is glorifying. The goal is glorifying. He says, verse 10, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The first thing we see here, Paul highlights his conduct. Paul's conduct. Basically, he's saying, here's the example. Here's the example for you to follow. He said discipleship is all about you being the type of person worth following. And Paul, once again, lays it out. And he says, look at my conduct. Here's the example. Here's the standard. Here's what your life should be looking like. And he gives us a three-point a three description of his life. Of what his life was communicating to these people at this church. He says, you are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. That first word is holy. It means set apart, from, set apart before God. And it, and it relates to inward faithfulness. Inward faithfulness. Paul says our conduct was holy. Remember, we've already talked about how he, he called upon God as a witness to examine his heart, to, to examine the inside, because while we can evaluate someone's outward actions, it's really hard to evaluate someone's motives. It's really hard to evaluate why someone does something. We can examine what someone does, but it's hard for us to make a good judgment call about why someone does something. That's why Paul appeals to both them as witnesses and God as witness. He says, our conduct is holy, and, and God can attest to that. Our motives are right in being here. We're not here for greed. We're not here to make money. We're not here to proclaim ourselves. We're not here to build ourselves up. We're here for God's glory. Our conduct is holy. That next word, righteous, has to do with practical good works. It's outward faithfulness. Outward faithfulness. Both these words carry the positive connotation. We're holy in our motive. We're righteous, meaning that we are busy working out our salvation. We are busy doing practical good works towards you. We are serving you. We're investing our life. And this third word, blameless, carries kind of the negative connotation, meaning that no charge could stand up. Yes, there are people in Thessalonica that are, that are bringing charges against us. Yes, there are people in Thessalonica saying that the only reason we came was for money. That the only reason we came was to make us look good. The only reason we came was for sexual favors. There are people bringing those charges, but he says they can't stand up. Because you guys know that's not why we came. Our conduct demonstrates that. 
So he says we're blameless. We're blameless. Probably a good um, illustration of that would be in the Old Testament with Daniel. Remember how Daniel uh, was elevated to a position of authority in the Persian Empire after Nebuchadnezzar and these guys had moved on? Persians come in. We just talked about that with Ezra. Daniel was promoted uh, under King Darius to an important position. And other people were jealous of him. And were told that they looked regularly for some way to catch Daniel in something that they could then turn him in for. You know, and, and it's not that Daniel was perfect. It's not that Daniel was without sin. But he was blameless. Like they could not find anything to turn him in for. I'm sure they looked for him to show up to work late. To slack off at work in some way. Um, to be dishonest at work in some way. I'm sure they looked for anything they could to bring before Darius and say, Darius, Daniel showed up ten minutes late to work today. You want to you handle that? They couldn't find anything. I mean, he was blameless when it came to them examining him. To the point that they had to make up something. They had to create a law that said he couldn't pray to his God. And then when he prayed to his God, that's when they finally caught him. Paul says, we're blameless before you. We live our life in such a way, we have set an example that's worth following, and and you can't really find anything against us. We're not perfect, but Paul says these charges that people are bringing about our motives and why we do things are false. Like, we really love you guys, and we really want to see you grow up in your faith. Next, we see Paul's instruction. Discipleship's not just setting an example. And we said step two is we get people to follow us. See, it's not good enough. It's not, it's not going far enough for you to just be a faithful church member here. It's not good enough for you to just be a faithful mom or a faithful dad. Someone who faithfully follows Christ and just sets the example and hopefully someone will see you from a distance and pick up on it. Paul set the example, but then he, he took on an instructive role with these people. He took on an instructive role where he said, follow my example. And he gives the picture of a dad with his kids. Previously, he was a nursing mom showing, showing intentional, gentle care with these people. Now he takes on the role of a dad, which doesn't mean that he loses his gentleness or his desire for tender care. But as we understand it, there is a different role at times that, that the mom and dad can play within that relationship. He says in, in verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Like a mom, he's concerned about providing tender, loving care and nutrition. Like a dad, he's concerned about training and disciplining. He takes on a, on, a, on a different role here, and it's not that a mom can't instruct and train and discipline. But he, he, he takes on a different role in the way that he describes it. The mom, concerned about providing the tender, loving care, nutrition. Like a dad, he's concerned about training and disciplining. And he, and he portrays this idea with dads through other areas in the New Testament. I think he kind of communicates to us what a godly dad even looks like. In Ephesians 6, 4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we see there's a right and a wrong way for a dad to even train up his child. But he doesn't do it to where the child is angry about it, who is resentful towards it. There is a tenderness, there is a gentleness as the dad raises up the child. Colossians 3.21. He says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So there's a role for a dad to be an encouragement as he instructs and as he guides. Hebrews 12.9. The author relies on an earthly picture to give us a better idea of a heavenly picture. He says in verse 9, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. 
So we see different pictures here of how a dad in the New Testament is expected to be the one who trains and instructs. And so often women have to come up and take on that role because the dad fails to do that. Um, and women should be commended in the relationship where they've had to do that, um, unfortunately, for their children. But the expectation in Scripture is that the man fulfills that role. That the man is the leader of that house through the word. That he leads his family through the word. And Paul says, I came here and I led you through the word. And it's not that, okay, if you're a girl here, then this, what he's talking about here doesn't apply to you because you're not going to ever function like a dad. Because he's already compared himself to a mom. And he's, he's playing off of both pictures. He says, I provide nutrition, I feed, and I instruct and I discipline. Just like a mom and dad would do with the kid. He says, I'm playing the part of mom and dad as a disciple. And so we would take on that same role as well. As well, If you're a girl, then you would take on the role of both a mom and a dad in discipleship. As a man, I take on the role of dad and mom as a disciple. He gives us three points as well about how he was faithful to instruct. He gave us three points for his conduct. He gives us three points for how he has been faithful to act like a dad to this church. And I want to clue you into a key little phrase that if you're not careful, you would overlook it. In verse 12, he says, we exhorted each one of you. And that, that phrase is, is really emphasized in the Greek. Like there's, there's special care by Paul to say, we did this for each one of you. He says every single one of you was important in this discipleship process. We wanted to make sure that each and every one of you got what you needed. We didn't just blanketly say we want to disciple people here. He says we were intentional that each and every one of you had the opportunity for this. He says, we acted like a dad. And a dad would do that with his kids, right? Like a dad wouldn't just, wouldn't just blanketly instruct. He would take into account the personality of his kids. And he would treat them individually different at times based on who that kid is. Paul says, I do the same thing in my discipleship. I treat you differently. Each one of you, like a dad would his kid, as I instruct you. Based on your personality and where you're at. And then he gives us the three-part description for how he does this. He says, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, and we charged you. This word exhorted, it means to call alongside. And I love this picture. It's the same wordage for the title of the Holy Spirit. It's the same word form for the title of the Holy Spirit given in John 14. John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, verse 16, it says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That's a title that we give to the Holy Spirit. He's our helper. And Paul is saying, we exhorted you or we helped you. In a sense, he's saying, we functioned very much like the Holy Spirit would in this regard in your life. In the same way that we expect the Holy Spirit to aid, to direct, and to instruct us, Paul says, in a sense, I'm a, I'm a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life. God is using me. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. God is using me as a visible demonstration of how the Holy Spirit works in your life. I'm here to aid and guide and direct you. That's, that's a heavy responsibility that Paul's throwing out there. He's using the same word that we use for the Holy Spirit. He's saying, I did this in your life. I, in a sense, acted very much like the Holy Spirit does in your life by aiding and guiding and directing you to spiritual maturity. Next, he said, we encouraged. We encouraged. And this, this, verb, this word takes on the idea of comfort or consolation. Comfort or consolation. It has to do with assisting in failure. It's used in John chapter 11 when Jesus was interacting with um, um, Lazarus' family after he was dead. That comfort and encouragement that he provided to Lazarus' family is the same word used here for how Paul interacted with his disciples. And so 
the implication here is that as he's discipling, as he's teaching, as he's instructing and aiding and guiding, there's failure that happens. There's failure. There, there's sin that continues to exist in the lives of these disciples. There's mess-ups. There's points where they choose to disobey. And instead of just throwing his hands up and saying, I'm done. I'm done discipling you guys. Like, you can't seem to get it. You don't seem interested. You keep falling into the same sins. He says, not only did I function like the Holy Spirit in a sense, I also encouraged you when you failed. When I gave you advice and you didn't take it, I encouraged you to get up, to pick yourself back up, and to keep pressing on. A different, a different level of what he does here. Not only is he teaching and instructing, he is encouraging where there's failure. He's encouraging where there's failure. And then lastly, the word charged. The word charged, it carries the idea to insist or to testify based on personal experience. To testify based on personal experience. It's a... It carries the idea of you have to do this. You have to do this. He says, like a dad would with his kids. A dad instructs his kids. When the kid fails to obey, he sits down and disciplines his kids. He comforts the child as, as, as the, the girl or boy is, is broken about their sin and begins to weep and is, is upset about having to be addressed like that by daddy. That there's comfort and encouragement that, hey, it's going to be okay. Like, I, want you to, I want you to repent of this and then I want us to be in good fellowship together again. There's that encouragement and comfort that a dad offers. But then there's always the, but you, you have to do this. Like, you're not excused from what I told you to do. No, no amount of tears excuses you from this. You have to do this. Paul was so resolved in his conviction about what these people needed to do. He was so grounded in the gospel and God's word. He says, this isn't optional. Like, I'm not just throwing out advice to you. I'm discipling you, meaning you have to do this. You have to do this. And the word carries the idea that he's testifying from personal experience. Either because Paul did it this way or should have done it this way. So we can disciple somebody in the decision that they're making and say, look, you need to do it this way because this is, this is how I did it. And like it, this, is, this was faithful to the word. Or you need to do it this way and I didn't do it that way. And here's what happened because I didn't do it that way. There, there's instruction. There's encouragement. There's exhortation just like the Holy Spirit gives to us. There's comfort and consolation that happens as well when someone fails. But there's never a diminishing attitude about it being something that they have to do. He says, we charged you. We charged you. We testified to you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So the last thing there, we've seen his conduct, his instruction, and now Paul's standard. Paul's standard is that these people would be God-pleasing, which is faithful with what we've defined discipleship as. We've said discipleship is training people to be God-pleasing, basically, to be God-honoring. He says, we charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul's not calling his disciples to please him, but God. Paul's not saying, live like this because it'll make me happy. Live like this because I'll be proud. He's not saying do these things because I'm telling you to do it. He's saying you do these things to make God, make God pleased. You live like this because it's worthy of what God has called you to. You live like this because of what God has done for you through the gospel. He has saved you for this purpose. We're not saved by our good works. We are saved for our good works. Every other religion teaches that good works come first. And then God finds favor with us. Christianity says, nope, God finds favor with us through Christ's works. And then our own good works flow out of that. Paul says, we charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Worthy of God. Paul wants to see them reach a state of spiritual maturity where they are daily living and surviving on their own. That's our desire here is that we raise you guys up to where... Where you don't need, you don't have to rely on one-on-one -on -one discipleship to follow Christ. 
We want you to be faithfully following God where you can be in fellowship with this church, but your growth is not contingent on someone teaching you something. That you are mature enough to now feed yourself, to grow yourself in context with this local church, but that you do not require the same assistance that a new believer would. Paul says, I want you to grow up and be mature in the faith. Ultimately, Paul's saying, I'm here to please God, not you. By pointing you to please God, who's calling you to salvation. Paul said all along, I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to flatter you. I'm not here to get anything from you. I'm here because God sent me. Because God's entrusted me with the gospel. I have to be here. I want to be here. I love you. I desire you. I desire your spiritual maturity. I'm going to pour my life into you. I'm going to do everything that I can, even though I work a full-time job. Even though my schedule is hectic, I'm going to prioritize you in this church to make sure that I am pouring my life into you. I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to function like a Holy Spirit in your life for you. I'm going to aid and guide and instruct you. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit speak through me as I interact with you. I'm going to comfort you and encourage you when you fail. When you don't do what God wants, I'm going to be there to help pick you up. I'm going to to comfort you, but I'm going to charge you. I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm not going to let you stay in your sin. I'm going to insist that you do what God's word says. I'm going to play that role in your life. I'm not going to let you off the hook. Not because I want you to please me, but because there's someone else who's calling you to his own kingdom and glory. This word call, is it's in the present tense. It's in the present tense, and... It carries the idea that, yes, God calls us to salvation, but he continues to call us to salvation. Because our salvation hasn't been fully realized yet. Yes, we're secure. Yes, our name's written in a book. Yes, we're on our way to heaven. But we haven't realized that yet. Like, salvation still, in a sense, has to happen for us. God's wrath hasn't come yet. We saw in chapter 1, we will be spared from that wrath when it does come. But we are still waiting for that wrath to come for our salvation to actually be in full effect. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14, it says, To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The picture that I got as I was studying this is that um, sometimes when I'm teaching, I can't get the attention of people in my class. And so I'll either stop or I'll just continue to to say the same thing over and over, like, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And eventually, one by one, people start to catch on. But you'll see other students who will stop, and then they'll kind of point and direct the other students' attention to me. That, hey, the teacher's asking us to do something right now. You need to look towards him and get your instructions from him. And I see that kind of picture going on here with what Paul's saying. He's saying, I'm exhorting you. I'm encouraging you. I'm charging you. Why? Because someone is calling your name to salvation. Someone is is calling out for you to come into glory, into his kingdom. Someone is going to come back here real soon. And you want to be found faithful to him. So Paul's not calling for faithfulness to him. He's saying, look, the God of the universe is trying to get your attention. Look to him for your instruction. Paul's saying, I'm going to charge you to walk in a manner worthy of him. Because his kingdom's coming. His kingdom's coming. Questions for us to ask in, in wrapping this up. Can I call upon the witness of God and others to validate my faithfulness to invest the gospel? Basically, do I think I'm faithful and do others think I am as well? Paul repeatedly says, he repeatedly says, you know why I'm here. You know I'm faithful to this. God knows I'm faithful to this. Can we honestly call upon God as witness and others as witness that we are being faithful with the gospel that we've been entrusted in? Or do we just think we are? Because we, we can easily justify and say, hey, I'm doing what I can. I'm doing what I can. I'm busy I'm doing as much as I can. Can we call on others? Can we call on God to serve as witness and say, so-and-so is faithful. They've been entrusted with the gospel. 
and they are laboring for a, for a group of people that they love dearly. And question number two, is my life characterized by wanting to please God by lovingly leading others to please Him? It's not good enough. It's not good enough in Scripture for you to simply live a life that's pleasing to God. I mean, that's all through Scripture, but that's not good enough. Because Scripture also calls us to lead others to be pleasing to God. We haven't, we haven't fulfilled our responsibilities if we're simply being pleasing to God. Because ultimately, if we're not leading others to be pleasing to God, then we aren't being pleasing to God. We've been given a commission to make disciples. And we're on a mission here at Sovereign Hope to figure out exactly how to do that. And for us to do it effectively, it means all of us getting on board saying, we're all busy, we all work jobs, we're all tired, but this has to happen. This has to happen. Whatever it takes, whatever necessary, this is what God has called us to. And Paul set the example and showed us that it's possible to be highly effective in planting a church while being extremely busy with our secular responsibilities. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us clear instruction in your word. God, we are humbled that you would call us into the gospel plan that you have. We are, we are humbled that you would entrust us with that gospel to pass on to others. God, we are calling out to you now as a church that you would Give us clarity about how to do here in Sonoy what Paul was faithful to do in Thessalonica. God, we want to be people who are holy and righteous and blameless in our conduct. We want to be people, we want to be people who are here for your glory and not our own glory. God, we want to be faithful to interact with Others in a way where we can exhort them and encourage them and charge them to be pleasing to you. God, we're asking for wisdom and how to do that with our busy schedules. Because, God, we're busy. I mean, you've given us other tasks and responsibilities. But, God, we also know that it's possible to, to do all this. You haven't given us more than we can handle. And God, we don't know how to plan a church. And we don't know how to figure out how to meet everyone's needs in this church. But God, we're asking for your wisdom and knowing how to do that. God, we're, we're, we're moving forward each and every day with what we know to do. God, we're asking that you would steer us in the right direction where we're off course. God, we want to be found faithful at the end of the day to be making disciples here. God, I pray that you would give us an affectionate desire for each other, an affectionate, affectionate desire for those who are going to come into this church, a desire and a love that would allow us to prioritize our schedules, recognizing that we've been entrusted with the gospel. We thank you for what you're doing here. God, I thank you for these people and their love for you, their desire to learn and God, I'm praying that you would use us, despite all of our inadequacies and challenges, God, that you would use us for your glory and honor here. And God, help us to find encouragement in knowing that you've already approved of us to do that here. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.